Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guests today are New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy to discuss World Cup 26 and his NWSL team, Gotham FC. And then Ross Greenberg, the executive producer of a new ESPN film on the University of North Carolina women's soccer dynasty. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage of the men's and women's game. That's grantwall.com. Now, here's my interview with New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. Our guest now is New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, who's a soccer guy. He's a part owner of Gotham FC in the NWSL, and New Jersey's MetLife Stadium was just named as a host city for World Cup 2026. Governor Murphy, congratulations on that, and thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Grant. And yeah, it's a big deal to get those games at MetLife, and we're thrilled to get them. And uh, we are working really hard to make sure we have a really good package of games. So it's not just the games, but it's which ones you get. And we would love to get the last game. So we're laser focused on that as a, as a next step. Well, let's talk about that then. Um, how does that work in terms of trying to get the final? Who do you think your competition is? And what do you think is the timeline for when that might be decided? Yeah, I'll start with the last. Uh, obviously, I don't want to speak for FIFA. They, they are the ones that, that, uh, that put the rules of the road and the timing together. But it, it will be next year at some point. Uh, that's the signals that we're getting. Uh, that's number one. Number two, how does the process look? Uh, a little bit still to be determined. FIFA's been terrific, I have to say, to deal with. They, and, and I'll give you an example of how focused they are. Immediately uh, after uh, they awarded the stadia, um, first of all, President Infantino reached out and congratulated me, which was a, which was a nice gesture on his part. Uh, and he and his colleagues have been, uh, especially Victor Montagliani, who was the CONCACAF uh, chief, have been really terrific to deal with. Um, they immediately had a two-day uh, seminar in New York City. Um, so they, they picked the, uh, the the stadia at the end of the week, and they had representatives from all um, locations into New York for a two-day seminar. Uh, and it'll be a multi-month process. Again, I don't have a lot of insight as, as to what exactly it looks like. But they'll want to put the, the, the big games in places that they know are reliable, that have the right infrastructure, uh, where the the, uh, the fan experience is a, a, a superior one. That whole combination, obviously, the stadium specifics matter. And Grant, lastly, I'm not sure who the competition is, but I assume it's the big market uh, towns. We take nothing for granted. We think we've got everything they need for the final, uh, but we that doesn't mean that we're not going to work our tails off to earn it. But I would think it's a something like a New York, L.A. dynamic would be my guess. The 94 final was in Pasadena in the Rose Bowl. But we think we've got everything it takes to get the 2026 final right here. How big a factor do you think time zones and European-friendly time zones for the final might be in your favor for the final in the sense of, you're right, there's been a men's World Cup final in L.A., there's been two women's World Cup finals in L.A., New York, New Jersey yeah. area hasn't had one, but is that a potentially big factor of the time zone situation? I got to believe it is a factor. Um, again, I don't want to speak for FIFA, but I, having lived in Europe uh, most recently as the U.S. ambassador in Germany, where, by the way, we played a lot of soccer and went to a lot of soccer, <laughs> um, 
I, I just have to believe that's got to be on the list of factors. It has to be. Um, you know, we're used to waking up and watching a, a prem game at 7.30 on a Saturday morning. Uh, you know, that, that, that works. Could, you, you could see, a, uh, I, I don't know what time you'd pick. You'd probably you'd try to pick something that's at least somewhat Asia-friendly. But maybe you see a, a noon final, which plays, you know, 6 p.m. in Germany, uh, 9 a.m. on the West Coast. You know, midnight plus or minus uh, in Asia. That, that to me feels. I, I think if you look at other alternatives, other geographies, other time zones, I think the they are less optimal. I'll put it that way. So again, I don't know how big a factor, but I, I have to have to believe it's a factor. And one thing in my reporting on this, I've heard that uh, Jerry Jones is making a big pitch to FIFA to get the final in Dallas. Have you heard that? What do yeah. you think about Jerry pushing for that? Yeah, I've, I've heard uh, the same, that he is uh, putting a lot of energy and resources into it. Um, and uh, we, we know him and his family, that they, they, they know how to, they know how to uh, do sports for sure. Um, and, they're, and they're good folks. Uh, again, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, not, not in any, any way to be critical of Dallas, because I, I think they've done an outstanding job with what they've, with what they've got. I, I just think you, 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 you want to be in a market that that exudes to the world that it is the biggest, um, the deepest, uh, and we think we have that. And by the way, importantly for your listeners, it is very important to note that we have a joint bid with New York City. So mm-hmm. Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, was standing right beside me when we celebrated um, that that New York City, New Jersey, was picked. And and uh, you know we we have the stadium, we have the passion, we have the actual infrastructure, but boy, New York is New York. And uh, and uh, we need them uh, as our partner at every step of the way because it is the world city in the United States, and they've been terrific partners uh, on this. This bid process was a really long one because the World Cup got awarded in 2018, so four years have passed. Uh, some big cities like Chicago chose not to be part of it. I reported a couple days ago that Los Angeles and Miami were up in the air until the very last day negotiating with FIFA before they ended up getting included. From your perspective, what were the most challenging parts of the process for your bid? Yeah, and I think this is typical, I think, Grant, of the, of the way this process usually unfolds around a World Cup. Uh, I, I, I was involved uh, in the, 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 just, the bid that just missed uh, when uh, Qatar and uh, Russia were picked um, in, in the U.S. Uh, I was on that bid committee until I had to step out of the lineup when I became nominated as ambassador. But um, listen, it, it, these are tough negotiations. So I think you have to start, do you have willing leaders and willing residents in your in your area mm. uh, and we have that overwhelmingly uh, I, I am personally passionate about soccer eric adams is a huge fan our teams are and far more importantly the the residents of new jersey in new york city uh, the, 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 these are hotbeds of soccer secondly you got to have a stadium that works um and and ours does in that life ninety two thousand five hundred feet so it's big enough it's relatively new. You've got some setback issues at the corners, uh, which is a typical reality to make sure FIFA's regulations are respected. Um, Ron Van Deveen has been running it forever and Giant Stadium before that. And obviously there were games in, 
in the 94 Cup uh, in Jersey. And then you, you, you negotiate. Uh, you, 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 you know, FIFA's, a, as, you know, listen, I don't begrudge this, but they're, they're tough on their terms. I respect that. We respect that. Um, I think at the end of the day, though, you've got to be able to embrace how big a deal this is. You, you've got to have sort of visibility on the horizon for how big a economic impact this is. Mm-hmm. Um, what it does to just the, the the brand in this case of New York City and New Jersey, what it will do as a as a legacy matter to the game and how it develops, um, particularly among the youth over the next number of years in New Jersey and New York City. Um, and I think if you don't have that, if, if you don't factor that in, you, you'll likely look at all the other elements of this and say, you know what, I'm not sure it's worth it. Some places apparently made that call, Chicago being most prominent among them. Uh, we, that's that, that's that was never an issue for us. This is a huge economic benefit, sport benefit, societal benefit, and if you see it that way, as, as tough as, as negotiations may be, um, you, you find a way to get there, and we did. I've had a lot of listeners ask me, what exactly does FIFA ask for from a bid city? How much of your funding for your bid is is public? How much is private? Yeah, I mean, I, I won't get into the details because there's a lot of line items um, and, and things like, you know, who has access to suites and, and, and things of that nature. But this will be overwhelmingly uh, privately funded. There'll be a host committee that will assemble over the next weeks and months. Um, clearly, you need government support, which I think importantly in the energies of leaders, Mayor Adams and myself. But this will overwhelmingly... You know, the, the government will will be one source, but it, it will overwhelmingly be a private sector reality with a robust host committee, robust sponsors. Uh, again, it's transformational as it relates to it's, you know, we hosted the Super Bowl a number of years ago before I was governor. And somebody said to me in this process, hey, you know, a lot of the action, the game might have been in New Jersey, but a lot of the action was in New York City. Uh, and whether that's true or not, I reminded the person we're not talking about one game. We're talking about a month of games uh, and, and with all that goes with that. Uh, Giant Stadium had a semifinal. But just imagine for a second, you've got, say, seven games and you've got the final or you've got the opener. Um, it's just transformational uh, both on both sides of the Hudson. I wanted to ask you a couple questions about Gotham FC. Uh, this was a club that faced some serious criticism and challenges a few years ago, but is in a different spot now. How are you feeling about where Gotham FC is now? A lot better than I was, but not yet um, where we need to be. I, I give my, a lot of people get credit, but um, we, we were underperforming. We won the first title uh, in a prior league iteration, the first real professional women's title, uh, and we haven't been back to the White House since. So that's... <laughs> That's my objective, and you know we're we're sort of we we are sort of a pendulum team. Uh, we'll shut somebody out, and then we'll get shut out. Um, so we, we've got a lot of good talent. Uh, we just need to get get into a, a better rhythm. And then off the field, we had a lot of challenges. We just we just didn't we weren't at the level that we wanted to be at. Uh, and uh, my wife, we're the majority owners, but my wife came in as the chair several years ago, and. To her credit and the credit of a lot of the team, we have a managing partner named Ed Nalbandian, who deserves an enormous amount of credit. 
Steve Tamaris, who's been with me from day one, we're good on the field, but I think we can be very good, and, and that's still in front of us. When you look at the NWSL as a league, how are you feeling about the state of the league right now? Oh, a lot better. I mean, a lot better. We're playing. We're all playing in real stadiums. Uh, we've got a terrific commissioner. Uh, it, we've expanded. You know, San Diego Wave came in uh, last weekend. And you look at them, they're a first-year team, and they're second on the table, I think. Um, so it's not just expansion, but it's expansion with success. More people in the seats. I, we want we want to see more of that, uh, a lot more. We are, as uh, I'll speak for Gotham, we're more ahead on the sponsor side than we are on getting bodies in the seats. So that's that's that, that's another big uh, objective and challenge for us. But I, I, this is this league is. You just look at the quality of the ownership, uh, the level of the level of play has never been in question. But it, it continues to be the league in the world. Um, just feel. The real, feel really good about the trajectory. Again, we're not where we, we need to be or, or will be, but feel really good about the direction we're going in. Last question for you is just, I'm curious to hear about some of your soccer experiences when you were an ambassador. Yeah, so I played a little bit when I was young, and I was not good, so let me just get that <laughs> off my chest, Grant. Uh, and I couldn't have played for Bob Bradley at Princeton, I'll put it that way. Uh, through high school, one of them played on a national championship team in college. Um, so it's in our blood, but we would go to games, uh, all the time. I, I had lived in Germany in the, as a private citizen in the nineties and became, e- even though I was already a soccer guy, more deeply infatuated by the game. But when we went back, when I was U S ambassador, it was a, an extraordinary experience for us. We went to a lot of games, obviously most of them in Germany, but all over, we went to in, games in Spain and England and, and, uh, our, our, our favorite home team was Hertha BSA, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Hertha B- BSC, which barely survived uh, relegation <laughs> this year uh, with a away from home 2-0 two, two win against Hamburg in the last relegation playoff. Um, so they'll stay up in the league next year. But just going to games, playing games, watching our kids play, just love the, the beautiful game indeed. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy is a part owner of Gotham FC in the NWSL, and New Jersey's MetLife Stadium was just named as a host city for World Cup 2026. Governor Murphy, you're always welcome to come on and talk soccer. Thanks for coming on the show. Great to be on, Grant. Thanks for having me. Big thanks to Governor Phil Murphy. Now, here's my interview with Ross Greenberg. Our guest now is Ross Greenberg who is the executive producer of a terrific new documentary film, Hidden Dynasty, the story of Carolina women's soccer. The film is part of ESPN's 5050 initiative, celebrating the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Ross, congratulations on the film, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Grant. It's good to be with you. So I've seen it. I like it. It's stuff I, I learned from, and I've covered Carolina women's soccer over the years, so I always think that's a, a good sign for, for a film. How did this film come about? Well, I had myself and Bob Rauscher uh, had come up with it as a concept for the ACC Network, who were looking for real films. And North Carolina women's soccer is, as we titled it, a hidden dynasty. Uh, You know, only those who are familiar with soccer in this country really understand 
the 22 national titles and the fact that Anson had built this incredible program. Uh, and so I felt it was a story that needed to be told. It, it just needed exposure. And lo and behold, it was the 50th anniversary of Title IX. This was a story all about Title IX because these were the Title IX babies that grew into women that uh, orchestrated one of the greatest dynasties in the history of American sports. So you, you have to tell those stories, you know? <laughs> I, I think it's really important especially, I mean, to tell these types of stories, but the areas that I learned the most from, for me at least, in this film were in the 70s and 80s. Um, and you have interviews with women who were cornerstones of the early days of the North Carolina program, people like Janet Rayfield, others. And even you mentioned Title IX, that Title IX was directly connected to women's soccer becoming a varsity sport at North Carolina. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that story. Yeah, so in 1972, Title IX came to be. And in 1979, uh, Bill Kobe, who was then the athletic director at UNC, really got uh, introduced to a woman named Laura Brockington, who just walked into his office one day and said, look, we have a club soccer team, but we want to varsity sport. Well, Kobe looked at his numbers and saw that it would allow him the flexibility to up the number of women athletes. And as you know, Title IX asked for a complete parity between men and women based on the enrollment at the school. So he was more than happy to uh, green light it. And he took his friend Anson Dorrance to the field to watch them play and said, what do you think? Can we make this into a varsity program? And Dorrance went, hell yeah, we can. They're good. And, um, you know, and the reason it was so directly tied to Title IX was if you look at the time frame, we're talking seven years after Title IX, which gave those women, girls, women, whatever you want to call them, the time to become major athletes. Uh, that seven years, if you think about it, from grammar school through high school, all of a sudden, women were becoming real athletes on the fields of play because they were given the opportunity to play soccer. They were no longer just confined to field hockey and cheerleading. So the timing was ripe and Laura Brockman seized it and uh, Anson led it. And then women like Janet Rayfield became the first scholarship athlete on the campus from the women's soccer team and the rest is history. I mean, that history is incredible. And, and just the amount of national titles, you mentioned the number earlier, and that really got going in the 80s, especially once the NCAA finally recognized women's sports and took it under its oversight. What, what happened in the 80s under Anson uh, that that created this where there was just so much serial winning of championships well he was the first one to go out and really heavily recruit so he had his tentacles all over the country all of a sudden searching for these dynamic great soccer women's soccer players um and he found them and what he did was he built upon his success so he starts winning national championships in 81 
And then lo and behold, he's, you know, he's winning them every year. And so to become a UNC soccer player in those days was such a great honor to even be recruited that if you got the chance to go, it was a no brainer. And, you know, it just evolved over time. He learned how to coach women, which we go into in depth in the film because it was strikingly different than his experience in coaching men. Because when he first got the job, he was coaching men and women. He just gave up the men's program once he, you know, dove into the, the women's game. And then, you know, he attracted, as he said, alpha females, women who were driven, competitive, fierce, uh, and wanted to win badly. And so he looked for that character trait. And so he kind of created the culture in North Carolina that you can be comfortable in our atmosphere as that kind of a woman competitive athlete. How did Anson Dorrance evolve, I guess, as the years went on in sort of continuing to, because this became a philosophy of his that he basically lived and continues to, of mm -hmm. coaching women different from coaching men? Well, he, he found out after time that, A, they didn't be, like being called by their last name, uh, which men did, uh, that when he got them into a meeting room, he, one of the best parts of the film is they would show film to the men, and when they saw something that they were doing poorly, all the men would point to the other people on the team and say, well, they're doing it, I'm not. Whereas the women all took it deathly seriously and all figured that they were all doing it in the wrong way. And uh, so he had to kind of change his focus and kind of make sure that they were comfortable and not being intimidated by the, the film room. Um, and so from there, it went to the field. He learned to treat them differently on the playing field. Uh, and lo and behold, he, he came up with his formula. Um, but these women were really a force unto themselves, you know, having gotten to know the Mia Hams and the Carla Overbecks and the Christine Lillies, you know, those women really were a force of nature. They, they were not going to be denied. They knew they were pioneering a sport, uh, for women. Uh, and, and they basically were looking at the world and saying, I am as good a soccer player as anyone on the planet, and I'm going to prove it to you and watch us play. And, you know, took little eight-year-olds and, and basically became their heroes. Um, so that's really, that's really what North Carolina soccer was all about. And we mentioned Janet Rayfield. Are there any other names of players from the 80s that you can mention that you thought were really important in the formation of the UNC program and, and folks that you interviewed for the film? Yeah. Yeah. April Heinrich comes to mind first, because don't forget, first of all, she she lit a light bulb on the top of Anson's head one day because when she was being recruited by Anson, she asked the question, well, what's the camaraderie on the team like? You know, what what is the, you know, formula in terms of the compatibility that each player has for the other? And Anson was like, what do you mean? 
And he, this was foreign to him. And what he realized at that moment was that the team culture was so much more important to the women. Uh, and that, you know, if you watch the women's game, there's a bond on and off the field uh, that the men can't seem to create in any sport almost. Uh, you know, you see championship basketball teams and yeah, there's a camaraderie among the players and you can feel it. But with the women's game, every team has that kind of camaraderie. You know, it's a formula um, that women have come up with to make their game kind of gel. And and so April April became a dominant figure in the in the early eighties. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I I think. And by the way, April went on to become what the coach of the U.S. national team. You know, which is another element of this film, which is to showcase the fact that so many of his players went on to become head coaches, including Janet Rayfield, who we mentioned earlier. But um, yeah, the '80s was a ripe time for for women to really explode. And you got so many people to sit down with you for this film, uh, which was really well done. And 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 I know how hard it is sometimes to get people to to sit down for a film interview. Mia Hamm is very front and center, as she should be in yeah. this film. Uh, gets emotional at times talking yeah. about the impact that Carolina and Anson and her teammates had on her. The most popular player probably in the history produced by uh, the Carolina program. How did Mia Hamm sort of become Mia Hamm while at Carolina? Uh, she says it in the film. I mean, we describe a couple of scenes. One is her alone on a practice field uh, in her senior year, actually after all the lessons that she was taught during those four years. And she's alone on the practice field, running her own drills, sweating. And Anson happens to come upon the field in his car and he looks out and he, he's like, who is that? You know, cause he sees the practice going on and he sees this woman hunched over sweating profusely and it's Mia. And so he kind of shook his head and he went back to his office and wrote her a note. And uh, the note basically said a champion is someone who, you know, goes to the end of the earth to practice, is sweating profusely and never gives up and will never quit and just wants to get better. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. And he writes that note to Mia and she gets it the next day. And in the film, you know, she credits that moment and another moment with changing her life. Uh, so, you know, I think Mia Hamm credits North Carolina soccer with making her the superstar champion that she became on the international stage. Um, and that's that's pretty profound stuff. Um, you know, her playing ability, which we show, is off the charts. Uh, she can do things with the soccer ball that most men can't do. So that comes across, but I think more it's her drive and who she became. And that's why she becomes emotional, because of the connection to Anson and Carolina. Um, you know, but Christine Lilly felt no differently. Carla Overbeck, 
April Heinrich, who I mentioned already, Heather O'Reilly. I mean, you go down the list, and we got all the top names that went through Carolina women's soccer uh, as part of the program um, in some way, manner, or fashion, because we went out and asked them all for as much footage as they had and photos, and they were all so cooperative because I'm telling you, they've waited an entire lifetime to tell America about their story at this university. And so giving them the opportunity to do that was just a wonderful experience for us. And in 52 minutes, you tell a lot of story. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to tell. And I'm impressed with how much you got into 52 minutes of running time. Um, and you do address um, the, the sexual harassment lawsuit that was filed against Dorrance and, and other officials at the university by Debbie Keller and Melissa Jennings. And mm -hmm. eventually those got settled uh, for, for financial mm -hmm. sums. And you have Jane McManus, very respected journalist, discussing that case in detail, along with Tim Crothers, terrific journalist, my old colleague at Sports Illustrated when we were there. Mm -hmm. um, how did you approach telling that part of the story because it it's obviously a sensitive topic even today with people in North Carolina. Yeah, I mean it wasn't easy. We you know, we knew we had to get into it in some manner or fashion. Worked very hard with Scott Sievers and also John Dahl at ESPN to figure out how we wanted to treat it journalistically and the two of them were incredibly helpful uh, to Bob Rauscher and myself and we you know, we knew we had to hit it because as Anson said to Tim Crothers in the film, you know, he made a 52 minute film about the history of North Carolina soccer. We tried to get right to the truth of, of what happened. You know, it wasn't um, it wasn't really sexual harassment. It was more, you know, the workplace was not conducive to uh you know what was necessary of a of a normal situation in that you know we knew that we had to get into ants and buddy buddying up to these women players and getting into conversations with them about their sexual exploits and things of that manner and which he denies to this day by the way but we didn't really want to dive in and spend 10 minutes on it because that wouldn't be fair to the program. Um, it happened. As you said, it was settled. Uh, and, uh, and here we are. And it happened in the mid 90s, which was a different time and place than here we are in 2022. The Me Too movement started to exist then because there was a revolution going on uh, in this country when it came to women's rights. So, you know, which was part of the wrapping up of what North Carolina soccer stood for. So, um, yeah, it was it was tough to address, but we knew we had to and Anson knew we had to. And he couldn't have been more professional in in sticking with us and, you know, allowing us to tell it. Could you share a little bit sort of about your background with women's soccer over the years? Because you certainly have a background with the sport. Yeah. So so my daughter played uh and she grew up in the 90s um took her to you know international games and then in in uh 2003 i decided that 
the the women's side the international women's soccer team from the united states of america was a hell of a story because similar to this unc story you know in the late 80s anson started the program and lo and behold the world cup was formed in 91 not even called the world cup by the way and um i saw this parallel course of you know, women, a women's revolution in this country, certainly on the playing fields because of Title IX and the emergence of this women's soccer team from the United States, who in 1999 played in front of 93,000 and millions and millions worldwide watching on television and became the first team in America to be taken seriously, team on the field of play. And I said, whoa, something happened here. You know, these pioneers have broken a major barrier. And, uh, and so I set out to do the documentary on that team, uh, got to know Mia and Carla and Christine and Julie Foudy and Brandy Chastain really well. And, uh, and then, you know, worked the next 15 years, main, mainly with Julie to uh, try to make a movie on that team um and lo and behold here we are in 2022 and and we're going to be doing that movie so uh we're excited about that we have a script and we're ready to go so i'm kind of tied at the hip with all these women and uh you know i call myself a, a feminist at heart um probably my wife and my daughter rachel have uh influenced me the most in that regard but these women influenced me a lot and you know i take this their story to heart i now i take the unc women's soccer team story to heart just to wrap up i'm curious to hear about the forces that are in play right now at this point in time with streaming companies and their demand side and increased interest in stories movies about women's sports in the present but also in the past in some of that history that maybe hasn't been uh told as much as it should have been what, what are these forces that are happening right now to produce more of these types of films yeah i think what's happening is that the women's movement is really starting to become and blossom and become really significant in this country um, and so by looking back, you can find these hidden stories, uh, whether it's the 99ers or UNC women's soccer, much of the same way that, you know, civil rights activism has spurned a lot of different storytelling and films and miniseries and documentary series on, on little known stories surrounding, you know, the civil rights uh, phenomenon throughout history. So they're very intriguing. And, uh, and when you find them, you know it. You know, I've always looked at these women and these stories as, as the, the kind of um, women's revolution equivalent of Jackie Robinson and civil rights. You know, he he didn't he championed civil rights because of who he was and what he was doing. And he believed in what he was doing and he carried it through once he retired. 
we are in an era now where Julie and Mia and Brandy, they knew exactly what they were doing when they went through their process of becoming Olympic and World Cup champions. They knew that they were setting the table for all the women that came after them. I remember talking to them in the late 90s, early 2000, that very subject. And so they knew that one day Megan Rapinoe and, and Alex Morgan and all of those women were gonna fight like hell to continue their tradition for equal pay, equal rights on the soccer pitch. And it has all come true to a point. I mean, it's not totally there, but it's getting there. And uh, and it's a, it's a sight to behold. And it's, you know, so, and when you're telling those stories, people always just immediately start calling up Alex Morgan or Megan Rapinoe and say, hey, you know, you're fighting, you're fighting, tell us about it. How's it going? What's happening? Let us behind the scenes. And rarely do they go back to the initial pioneer, whether it's Jackie Robinson or, you know, Mia and, and Julie. And, and in this case, uh, you know, back to Janet Rayfield and April Heinrich and Mia and, you know, uh, Carla and, and all the women that, that forged the new world of women's soccer. So it's just, it's just what you should do. You know, you, you need to go back to the beginning to understand where we are today. Ross Greenberg is the executive producer of the new documentary film, Hidden Dynasty, the story of Carolina women's soccer, which is part of ESPN's 5050 initiative, celebrating the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Ross, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Grant. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Governor Phil Murphy and Ross Greenberg, as well as producer Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. <laughs>